Well, hello. Here we are with another dishcast. Another dishcast with someone I've really always enjoyed talking to and someone who's a really important, I think, voice in our current, uh, what we might call a debate, insofar as the debate exists. Ross Douthat, my old colleague at The Atlantic, the famed sole conservative op-ed columnist for The New York Times, the author of, of several books, but most recently, this rather beautiful book, which is introduces a slightly different Ross Douthat than you are used to, which is called The Deep Places, A Memoir of Illness and Discovery. Ross, thank you so much for coming and joining us. Andrew, it's a pleasure. And you left off the most important line on my resume, which is former guest blogger for AndrewSullivan.com. This is true. There's a long uh, long list of important, you know, important American journalists. And I'm not claiming that I'm important, but there's a long list of American journalists for whom that is a crucial early line on on the resume. And I am one of them. Well, it was a great honor to have you at the dish at the time as I gasped for air in some dark room. You needed needed some breaks, man. You needed some breaks. And that was palpable, definitely. And I was happy to help. Well, thank you, Ross. I want to start with just simply the fact that this book is unveils a different Ross. I mean, and to be honest with you, uh, kind of staggering. I, I mean, having just read you, I mean, I, I was aware, I think, a couple of years ago that you were struggling with Lyme disease, which is what the book is really about. But you would have no inkling from your public writing that you were going through this level of physical and personal trauma. Tell us a little I'm, bit. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> That, that's that was you, the goal. you pulled it off i, I mean, think i think it was, yeah seriously would not have had a a clue that you were going through this and personally i find that kind of staggering you you didn't miss deadlines you took one month off when you were really in terrible pain but that was under the excuse of writing a book right? i was pretending that's to that, write a that book was the time you yes. took off. so let's start from the beginning tell us a little bit about your upbringing and and, and how you arrived at the place you are now. Your parents particularly had a strong influence on you religiously. Tell us a little bit about that if you could. Sure. So I grew up in mostly in New Haven, Connecticut, which is actually where we've ended up living now, in part because of some of the strange events that I relate in the new book. But I grew up there. My parents, my my father was a lawyer. My mother was in the first class of women at Yale. And so they were in certain ways a kind of normal, you know, 1980s, upper middle class, Northeastern couple. We, you know, dutifully voted for Walter Mondale. All of my earliest political memories involve, you know, rooting for Bill Clinton in 1992. But we also had this sort of subterranean aspect to our life, which was that for a variety of reasons, including some sort of uh, weird allergies and chemical sensitivities that my mother had, we ended up in a couple of strange zones. One was sort of the zone of like the sort of health food world long before health food was cool. You know, the days when Whole Foods was just a gleam in John Mackey's eye. And in order to get good tofu, you had to go to some weird store, you know, run by an aging hippie who would sort of shuffle around with tongs and pull huge blocks of tofu out of vats of disgusting liquid. So we did that. But then my mother also had a friend who invited her to go to a healing service. Um, There's a woman with the uh, kind of heavy handed name of Grace, 
who had a healing ministry in Southern Connecticut. And if you know Southern Connecticut, you know it's not a very sort of like charismatic Christianity, Pentecostalist kind of kind of part of America. And yet there was this woman who would hold services in high school auditoriums that were sort of in certain ways, conventional kind of, you know, guitars and praise music Christianity. Uh, but she would go around and pray for people and, and you know, pray for people who were sick, pick people out of the audience who had various illnesses. And they would be what, you know, the technical Pentecostalist term is they would be slain and they would usually fall down and lie on the floor of high school auditoriums having Basically, you you know, you could just call them what they're supposed to be, encounters with the Holy Spirit. And my mother went to one of these services and was very uncomfortable throughout and almost left, but in the end, ended up being prayed for and having one of these experiences. And she actually, her name is Patricia Snow. If your listeners are really interested, she wrote an essay about it for First Things a couple of years ago. So you can get sort of her own personal account if you Google it. But for me, this was the beginning of spending a big chunk of my childhood sort of following my parents as they went on this very interesting, very strange religious pilgrimage through first her healing services and then various other Pentecostalist and evangelical worlds. We drove all the way to Toronto at one point for this essentially Pentecostalist revival where it was a, what's called a vineyard church. A vineyard is, to the extent that there are Pentecostalist denominations, the vineyard is a Pentecostalist denomination. And there was no sort of singular focus at this church, the way there was this woman grace at these healing services. It was more like the Holy Spirit was sort of a ball that people would pass around the room and people would fall down and laugh and roar like lions. And, you know, and I observed all of this as a, as a 13 year old <laughs> emphatically from wow. the sidelines. I, I was not having these experiences. I was watching other people have these experiences. And we'd started out Episcopalian. And so we did, in a sense, the full tour. We were Episcopalian, Pentecostalist, evangelical, and then ended up when I was a teenager as Roman Catholics. And so that is how I became, you know, the, I guess, some kind of Roman Catholic writer <laughs> that I ultimately become, became because we did a full tour of American Christianity before in the Roman Catholic Church. And you, you said this before we were recording, but I think I, maybe I say this in the current book, but you know, I was very relieved and happy to become a Catholic precisely because in Catholicism, no one ever puts their hand on your shoulder and asks you to testify to them, you know, how the Lord Jesus changed your life, which was the terror of my, the terror of my teenage existence was that kind of sort of personalized testimony. In Catholicism, the idea that, you know, you had sort of rote prayers that you memorized and you had sacraments that were manifestations of God's grace that were guaranteed to work even if you didn't feel something personally while they were happening. All of that was quite attractive to me. But at the same time, I wasn't a skeptic about my parents' experiences. You know, there was some skepticism around the edges of some of these, you know, some of these churches and religious entrepreneurs. But the watching the faith healing and the revivalism and so on, it, it wasn't like you know the scene in which is the is it in it's the first it's the first borat movie is it where he goes to the revival where he goes to the pentecostalist service and they're like sort of 
it's one of the Sasha Baron Cohen movies and they're praying for him and they sort of are, you know, pushing him down to get, you know, to get him to look like this is really happening or something. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of, you know, especially sort of secular and liberal people who are very distant from this kind of Christianity assume that it's all sort of like that, that it's all sort of like performative and, you know, people are just sort of thrashing and flailing around because they're caught up in the mood of the crowd. And, you know, even though it was a long time ago, I would say from my childhood that the places we were weren't like that at all. And it is sort of instilled in me a sense that like at least certain kinds of religious experience have a fundamental reality that defies not all explanation, but the easiest sort of material explanations. But still, I was very happy to start memorizing prayers and not be asked to say them spontaneously. So did you witness your mother having one of these uh, experiences? The, the, were you there when your mother, as it were, fell out? I think I wasn't there for the very first time, but yes, I witnessed both of my parents and many other people having going out in the spirit and, and speaking in tongues and, you know, the whole nine yards. Yeah. And at the time when you were watching them, these are your parents, these are other people, you retained a, a certain level of skepticism, but also a certain amount of presumably engagement in this. I mean, you weren't willing to dismiss it as an absolute fraud. No, not at all. No, and it started, I, I was pretty young when it started. And so it, it seemed more normal to me than it would have if it had started when I was like 14 or 15. I think I was probably like... Mm -hmm six or seven years old when we started going to those services. And so, no, I would say I had distance from it, but not really strong skepticism. It, I sort of, you know, without necessarily, you know, as, as I got older and started thinking about, you know, theology and arguments about God and these kind of things, you know, you, I developed some skepticism about you know, some of the theological trappings of some of these churches, maybe. But the reality of what was happening to people, my parents and friends, you know, I mean, they would bring, they came out of a very secular, highly educated milieu. And they would bring people to these services, you know, who would be like a sort of experimental artist, an avant-garde artist living in New Haven, right? Who, you know, had no religion whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And they would have experiences, not, not universally, but they would fall down, they would go out. And often, you know, often they clearly would just not know how to process it and would sort of return to their prior life sort of baffled by this. Yeah, I mean, I know so I, I, I believed in the, I guess you could just say the supernatural reality of the experiences from the start without any skeptical distance came later. So now I understand why you were relieved in a way to be spared some of the emotional drama in, in, when you became a Catholic. It's more challenging for me to understand why someone who was really involved in that, like your parents, would then shift to Roman Catholicism. That's just, it's not often you hear it that way. You hear it the other way no. yep. quite a lot, but it's yes. rare to go that way. And so forgive me for penetrating further, but what do you have an idea why your mother and father made this switch? Yes, I, I do. I mean, I, I think it's a combination of things. I, I would say my mother is fundamentally a sort of intellectual and theological personality. And from the beginning, she was, you know, she was, the experiences were life altering. You know, they rerouted our life in a pretty substantial way. But she wasn't just in it for the experiences. She was interested in 
you know, truth and what, you know, if these experiences showed that God really exists and is manifest in American Christianity in certain ways, that still doesn't tell you, you know, which, you know, which church you should ultimately belong to. An experience can, an experience is just an experience. It, it still remains to be interpreted, right? And we saw a lot of things in these churches, you know, the Pentecostalist world touched on a lot of prosperity gospel stuff and, you know, the evangelical world had its own problems, I would say, that that she sort of reacted against. And I think, you know, just as a strictly intellectual matter, I don't think it was surprising, especially since she'd started out Episcopalian and in a kind of high church Episcopalianism as a child, that at that level of like, you know, okay, God exists, the Holy Spirit is real, which is the actual church founded by Jesus Christ. It's not surprising that she might end up in Catholicism rather than, you know, a storefront Baptist church or something. But then at the same time, I think she, there's, we spent a little time with charismatic Catholics, which obviously do exist as Amy Coney Barrett and, you know, her life and career testified to. So there was that bridge to some extent, but then at a certain point, I think my mom became very interested in the Catholic mystical tradition, which is, I'm not a mystical personality at all. So it's a little, it's a little distant from me. I read like, you know, Teresa of Avila or these kind of writers that I'm, yeah, I struggle to sort of enter fully into it. But I think the Pentecostalist experiences helped her penetrate more fully into the mystical side of Catholicism. And of course, there, meaning no offense, but there really is no mystical side to Episcopalianism, <laughs> especially <laughs> Southern Connecticut Episcopalianism, whereas Catholicism really does have this intense mystical tradition that you can, you know, that you can embrace and enter into. So I, it was, I, I agree that it's surprising in certain ways, but there really were sort of bridges from being slain in the spirit to like Eucharistic adoration that you might not have expected to be there. No, I, I actually, I can see that from a distance, actually. I can. I had one branch of my family that was charismatic Catholic. They didn't fit in easily with their faith. It was, especially in England, but it's there. And you're right. There is a surprising intensity and authenticity to some of it that, that defies my understanding as well, because I haven't had any of those sort of going out in the spirit or falling out or whatever it's called. So when you entered the secular world, which would have been at Harvard, right? And, and, and it was truly the truly secular cathedral, as it were, let's use that term. <laughs> However, uh, we're going to do our the other cathedral, the other... segment. Good. It's the Arvin segment now, but he'll always be mold bug. Uh, Cause me, I Andrew. felt this too. When, <laughs> when you, when you, went to these elite institutions as a believing Christian. It's a, it's a very formative experience, I think, because you're aware, at least I became much more aware, that the world does not think much of us. The world is really almost condescends to us. And you can have various responses to that. I think you can attach yourself more firmly to the tradition. You can walk away from the tradition. But it is for those who are trying to survive the secular experience of a four-year elite college education, quite a challenge. And, and it kind of creates a certain kind of personality. Is that something that that resonates with you? I mean, to some extent, yes. And, you know, I think if you just looked 
at the arc of my, you know, career where I am obviously like not just a Catholic writer, but sort of known for a conservative style of Catholicism and, you know, for criticizing Pope Francis for, <laughs> for his, you know, his experiments and so on. I, yeah, I think you could tell a pretty straightforward story of, you know, a sort of conservative Catholicism sort of held firmly in resistance to secular dismissal and scorn. At the same time, I don't know if that, I don't know how fully that maps onto the kind of every day of my life, in part because so, so, you know, we had this life, right, this like life as Pentecostalists, and then eventually as Catholics. But we weren't living in Pentecostalist America, we were living in secular America all the time. Mm -hmm. And I went to a mm -hmm. secular liberal private school for high school. You know, we were in New Haven. We were sort of, you know, when we were involved in an ill-fated evangelical church startup, it, it was literally on Yale's campus. So the press of the secular yeah. world, you know, we read the New York Times, right? Like I knew what the New York Times <laughs> thought about conservative Catholics in 1996. So the, in, in that sense, like the press of the secular world, it wasn't sort of this singular shock where I went to Harvard and it was like, oh my mm -hmm. God, nobody believes in God. And they all, you know, they all think we're snake handlers. It was more sort of taken for granted that religion was like this weird thing that coexist, that could coexist in your life with a secular, a normal secular existence. But that's, so that's always been true for me. To me, the shock of Harvard, and I, I guess I wrote about this when I wrote my, you know, arrogant young man's book about Harvard, but was the shock of Harvard was more about class than ideology. I was sort of shocked, even coming from a, you know, a New England private school background, the sort of wealth, ambition, that materialism in that sense, rather than a secular scientific sense. I, I, I felt mm -hmm. like that was more shocking to me at Harvard than its secularism, the secularism I sort of expected. And, you know, my, I mean, my repeated experience throughout life, and, you know, this has been true in the illness that I wrote about, but it was true before that in certain ways, is that, you know, if you're a believer, a religious believer sort of operating in a secular environment, Secularism can seem really big and tough, but it, if you sort of push on it, it's actually pretty weak, you know, and, and that can happen in different ways. It can happen if you, you know, wander off the map a little bit like my parents did and go to a faith healing service and discover that, you know, oh, my God, crazy things are happening here. Right. It can happen that way, but it can happen intellectually, too. Right. Like that, you know, if you sort of push on the, you know, the consensus of eliminative Darwinian materialism or whatever, you, you'll often be kind of underwhelmed by what, by what you find there. And, you know, whenever I have tried to sort of go deep into, you know, the best arguments, not against like a particular Catholic doctrine, but against sort of religious belief, I always come away feeling like, really, is that's the best you've got? Because over here, I think I got some pretty good reasons to be religious, as, you know, as strange as some of them may be. But also the, the religious experience helps explain some of the extremities in life in ways that, that secularism doesn't quite, and some of the mysteries in life that secularism doesn't like. And why I'm talking yes. about this is because when a religious person who, who's also a modern secular person when something like an illness strikes, inevitably, especially an illness, and let's talk about that in a second, inevitably you are, you are forced back on your resources, spiritually, 
intellectually, your family, in ways that I find quite interesting for the development and sustenance of faith, at least in my own experience. And, and, but I want, to, I want to get to actually what happened to you. So you had a bug bite, right? That's the origin of all this. Uh, <laughs> Most bite. likely, yes. Yes. But you don't remember the actual moment it happened, but where you think you do, or maybe not. I, I have a pretty good idea of when and where it happened, but mm -hmm. I did not actually see the tick, the tiny crawling insect that delivered me to the very strange next six years of my life. So we, the short version is we were living in Washington, D.C., you know, where I had my career as a New York Times columnist and former Andrew Sullivan guest blogger. But my <laughs> wife and I were both from both from Connecticut, both from New England. My mother's family was from Maine originally. We always had the idea that we wanted to move back to New England. We had two kids. We were going to have a third kid. We wanted more space. We had all these reasons. And I had this sort of romantic fantasy about owning land and having a barn and all of these all these totally ludicrous ideas. But at a, a certain point in 2015, we reached a point in our life where our careers were going well and we had jobs that you could sort of do from anywhere. And, uh, you know, you know something about what, what this is like. And it sort of opened up this opportunity where we said, well, why shouldn't we live in, you know, suburban or rural Connecticut instead of in Capitol Hill with terror alerts blaring all the time and no space for our kids. And so we went up and started looking for houses, sort of fantasy houses. And then the market in DC was very hot and we sold our row house for way more than we expected. So we had all this extra money and we ended up plowing it into this 1790s farmhouse with a pool and a barn and a guest cottage and a field and an empty chicken coop and everything you could imagine for, well, to put it in, in, in sort of terms from our own, you know, recent religious journalism, my own private Benedict option. Right. And I am pretty sure that I was that I had my encounter with the deer tick on the day of the inspection of this house. The you know, when I walked the property, the over the highly overgrown property. But all that I actually saw of it was a, uh, a little swelling on my lymph node a couple of weeks later, maybe less than that. Um, so there was no tick. And so I went to, you know, I went to a doctor and they said, oh, it's just a boil or something. And this set in motion these several months as we were making this move to Connecticut, where I was still in Washington, D.C., and I just got sicker and sicker with totally, you know, phantom heart attacks, pain all over my body, bizarre symptoms of every kind. And I had never seriously been sick well, let's, before. Well, let's go through those symptoms because they are, they're shocking in a way, because it, it, the, the nature of this disease is that it will attack all sorts of parts of your body in different order in different ways. Uh, tell me about that. Like, they, they, describe exactly what you experienced. So it started with pain around the neck and the head, you know, presumably close to where I had the initial swelling slash bite mm -hmm. and sort of a stiff neck and headaches. And it sort of advanced to the point where I was having pain, you know, in my jaw and sort of into my teeth and you know the kind of thing that makes you worry about like a brain tumor you know essentially like okay something is wrong in my head and then there came this moment and it was actually like a specific night where i was about i was supposed to go on a, a trip to to italy the next day 
And I just had a complete full body meltdown where it was like my whole body was vibrating in this. It, I think in the book, I say it's like you know, like a tuning fork. I had, you know, diarrhea, gagging, sort of both pain and just sort of weird prickling and tingling all over and couldn't sleep. And it lasted for hours and hours and then sort of subsided. But from that point on, I never felt normal again. And there would always be this sort of mild feeling of like dissociation or, you know, the way you feel if you are in the last day of a fever or if you get up suddenly and you have a rush of blood to your head. I, I would have that all the time punctuated by pain that just migrated. So one day your stomach would hurt and the next day your shoulder would hurt. And the worst eventually about a month in that started sending me to the emergency room was just tremendous chest pain that you know, you assumed had to be a heart attack. And you would go to the emergency room and they would look at your heart and your heart was just fine and your chest was just fine. And, you know, they obviously, I mean, the assumption was that you were under a lot of stress and contra phantom heart attack. So I went to the emergency room a couple of times on a family trip to Pittsburgh and then again a couple of times in DC. And then, you know, it didn't do anything and then it would move on and it would be in your throat and stomach. And so I went and got an endoscopy, right? Like you just sort of move through attempted diagnoses that are tailored to the place in your body that seems to be in trouble. And then the place changes and your sense of what's wrong with you changes day to day and, and week to week. And I lost 40 pounds and slept. I was down to like an hour of sleep a night because you would, you couldn't sleep. Your body would sort of, as soon as you relaxed, your body would sort of pull you back awake. It was like an alarm clock going off inside your chest. And through it all, so I, you know, I had grown up in Connecticut, as, I, as I've said. So I knew Lyme disease existed. I knew this was one of the, you know, I knew something about it, not enough, but something. But I kept going to doctors and getting tests and they kept not finding anything. And it turns out that this is, well, there's a huge medical controversy around Lyme disease, but part of the controversy is about how effective the tests are for it. And so one way to test for it is there's a test where a, in order to meet CDC criteria for having Lyme disease, you need five bands to activate. And so I later realized that I was getting tests where one band would activate or two bands would activate or three bands would activate, but not the five. And so the doctors in DC would look at that and say, well, you're, you know, it's not Lyme disease. It doesn't reach the criteria, but, and so they would send me what to, must it to be psychiatrists. Like? Right. Sorry. What must it be like to be in such obvious pain, agony at times, sleeplessness? I mean, this is not a mild illness. This is something that's consuming your body all the time to be told you're not really sick or we don't, we can't diagnose what's happening to you. At what point did Lyme become, you know, your working hypothesis that this is what it is? It has to be that, even though these doctors are looking at you uncomprehendingly or even, I mean, you're very kind to them. They seem, they all seem willing to help, but there must have come a point at which like, you're just yelling, get me better. Like, what is this? And there was nothing. I mean, yeah, I mean there was, there was a body. period. You go into a huge amount of detail. Yeah, I mean, I saw, you know, 10 to 15 doctors in a span of about two or three months. And, you know, I think there are a lot of people for whom chronic illness sort of creeps up on them and their attempts for treatment are more sort of spread out. And in my case, it seemed to happen much more suddenly. And we were moving. 
we had bought a very expensive house. My Abby, my wife was pregnant. Now she literally, the day I felt the, you know, the, the bump, the bite on my neck was the day she walked into our bedroom with the positive pregnancy test. So this was not a situation in which I wanted to be sick. And so I, yeah, I just, if a doctor couldn't help me, I went on to the next and I, you know, I worked my way up the ladders. I got to the head of infectious diseases at one hospital, but none of them, none of them really had anything. And I think Lyme disease was sort of my hypothesis about a month and a half in. And then I tried an antibiotic and I seemed to get worse, which it turns out is actually quite common in the treatment of Lyme disease, but I did not fully understand that at the time. And so I sort of discarded the hypothesis. That's almost as if the almost as if the purging of well, the fight in your body against this this bacteria was itself a bit like getting a fever when you're getting better. It intensified the symptoms before yes. it felt better. Yeah, it's called it's it's called something with the capital H. I'm trying to remember. It's a German. It's yes, it's, it's the German term. Is the technically it's the Yerish Herxheimer effect, but it just gets called the Herxheimer effect. And it's was discovered in the case of syphilis, which is actually like Lyme disease, a kind of burrowing spirit spiral. There are some similarities between the diseases, but yes, it basically the idea is that as when you have a very strong infection as the bacteria are killed in your system and your body is trying to flush them out you will get worse in various ways and some people literally get fevers as part of that effect eventually many months of experimentation later my version of it was that i would sort of itch and rub and need to flail whatever body part was affected it's very you know incredibly bizarre the entire experience was incredibly bizarre but the lime kind of Go ahead. Go on. I, well, I was just, just going to say these are medieval tortures. Yes, <laughs> these are torturous. I mean, the, the one thing you, I, I'm reading this, is that just physically speaking, to endure that range of pain, to see yourself stumbling around at night, scratching yourself, jumping into showers, you know, all the things that you're trying, you're you're trying to abate this thing in some way. I. I and you don't know where it's going to hit you next. Even though you say at some point when you exercise them, those parts are the ones that subsequently get inflamed or hurt. This is kind of a, it reminds, I mean, to be honest with you, it reminds me of, of people, this is this with a long-term AIDS who just have no idea which part of their body is going to go bonkers next, whether it's going to be your brain, whether it's going to be your heart, whether it's going to be your stomach, that these different tortures arrive under this general condition. Yeah, and I think... You, you see this a bit with COVID, with people who have symptoms long-term. Something that I definitely did not understand before this experience is just how systemic an infection or, a pro or problems related to an infection can become, right? That you tend to think of diseases as, or at least when you haven't had one, <laughs> right? As sort of localized. And they tend to get right. treated that way, right? So. In the case of Lyme disease, the first people diagnosed with it had swollen arthritic knees. They were kids with juvenile arthritis. That was how they were first diagnosed. And so thereafter, doctors would look for that, right, as sort of the symptom. And, you know, in the case of COVID, right, COVID starts out as a throat and lung and, and chest infection. And that's where sort of the acute version of the illness clearly is. And that's the life-threatening th version of the illness. But then if you read about or have had friends who dealt with it, have dealt with it longer term. And I think my own case lasted a little while as well. 
it, you know, it gets into a lot of places. You have people who have like their toe problems with COVID, right? There are, you know, of course, famously, you can lose your sense of smell and so on. But I think that, yeah, that to me, that was, you know, again, one part of the education was realizing that your body is a system. And once something gets in that your body can't deal with, it just becomes completely unpredictable about where, or semi-predictable. The, the weird thing with my Lyme experience was there was some kind of cycle, right? Like your head would hurt one day, your knee would hurt another day. And it was always just out of my grasp, like how to predict it, right? I would like keep charts and say, okay, so 10 days have gone by. So I would expect to feel gagging in my throat again. But then that would come three days later than I attempted some meticulous right. chart would predict. So it was like, you know, that sort of through a glass darkly, there's almost, there's almost a pattern, but you can't quite get your mind around it. There is a unique experience, chronic illness, which is different than illness in a way, because to some extent, our model of illness is you get sick, there are medicines, or you endure it, and then you get better. And getting better is what everyone who's sick is focused on even though it always strikes me that the world of the sick and the world of the well are so different in terms of their rhythms. And it's very hard for me when I'm living in the, the kingdom of wellness that to remember and to yep. really be vividly aware of the kingdom of sickness. They kind of banish each other from their particular lives. But the challenge of living with a disease that may not ever go away or that will not go away until you die or may kill you slowly over time, that's a very specific kind of experience, which people with long COVID are now grappling with. What advice do you have for people tackling such a diffuse, endless, no resolution apparently form of illness in which illness becomes just integral to your life? So my advice is my, my experience was mostly focused on fighting rather than adaptation. And I don't think that's universally applicable. It's certainly not applicable to people who have long-term illnesses that are, you know, sort of simply degenerative, right? And are sort of guaranteed to kill them eventually. But like for something, or something, right. But for what is distinctive about Lyme, and I think this is true of other chronic, other poorly understood chronic conditions, right? Is that, you know, you sh it's an infection, right? It, it, in, well, so I, I should say that there are competing theories of chronic Lyme disease. There's obviously the theory that it's purely psychosomatic, that it's, you know, a sort of kind of physical manifestation of a kind of mental illness. I don't think that's true. But then there's also the theory that it's an autoimmune condition, that you get sort of triggered, your immune system gets triggered by an initial infection. And, but then the infection is gone and your immune system keeps firing and is sort of haywire for a long period of time. And so the big debate in chronic Lyme treatment is between people who have that hypothesis, which is the more mainstream and official view, and people who think that no, in fact, the pathogen has sort of goes underground in your body and resurfaces but it's still there and it's still what's causing it. And all of my experience suggests that in, it's the third, that the disease is still there, that you need to fight it and that you can fight it. It just takes an incredibly long period of time and experimentation and effort. So basically from the point at which I figured out that I really did have Lyme disease, which was 
essentially once we moved to Connecticut and I started seeing doctors who had more experience with it to the point where I could say, you know, I can go six weeks without ever taking an antibiotic. That's six years, six years of, you know, of suffering, but not just endurance of suffering and this kind of insane sustained effort to try and figure out what you can actually do not to cure yourself tomorrow, you know, you give up on that hope pretty quickly, but to make a kind of in incremental progress. And I think it's an open question, you know, how many diseases that's true of and in the broader zone of chronic illness, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia and all of these things, they're the same debates that you get in Lyme disease, right? Where it's like, is something in your body still causing that can be treated or is your immune system doing it or is your mind doing it? Those debates are happening all over. But all of my experience was that you had to fight it and you could fight it and you could make progress. You just had to be incredibly experimental and accept that it was going to take a hell of a long time. And I use the word hell advisedly. Yes. And it, 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 one of the analogies is you're fighting a counterinsurgency in a, in a country that will not <laughs> accept the new regime. And it's just you're surging after surge. And you both accepted the medical establishments. You weren't you didn't rebel against that, but you certainly didn't think that was enough that, that you you did your own research. You added all sorts of other things to your diet and your regimen. You reached back to your mother's experience with alternative health and you don't seem in any way insofar as they would work and you would attempt to test them on yourself in in various ways you were not afraid to try shit out yep. including even terrible drugs like hydroxychloroquine whatever hydroxychloroquine is actually it's you know people have people have taken it all over the world it was a little bit but yeah it was know, it was, it was part of one of it was part of one of the one of the Lyme regimens, although I didn't. It was called Plaquenil. That was the that's the brand name. So it took me a little while to figure out when hydroxy. So give me an array of some of the things you put in your body. Tell us, give it, I mean, you must be give it, just list a few. So I you, I I mean tried. I have I have taken you know ten to twelve different antibiotics, which would mean doxycycline, tetracycline, amoxicillin, rifampin. Recephin, clindamycin, and yeah, that you could go on. I have mm -hmm. taken pretty much any herbal supplement that anyone anywhere thought helped with. That's um, ever proposed. <laughs> so that that would be dozens. And what would they spend? What would they spend? Go on. Sorry. Well, they would go from you know sort of simple things, well, I, you know things that everyone takes like vitamin C. I did IV intravenous vitamin C at one point, sort of things like turmeric and ginger and oil of oregano, all the way up to like an array of Japanese herbs, things with names like terminalia, chibula, wormwood, you know, I mean, just if I, I am, I don't take these things now for the most part, I still take them occasionally, but I have drawers in my attic that have, you know, Japanese knotweed, you know, a hundred half used pill bottles. And some of them were things, some of them are things that are, you know, sort of actually known to be antimicrobial and antibacterial. There are plenty of herbs like that. And a lot of them were things that have sort of specific theorized, but I shouldn't even say theorized, it's all anecdote, but Lyme applications. Because the thing with the theory of chronic Lyme infection is that the Lyme bacteria is 
a shapeshifter. It can change its shape in the presence of antibiotics. It burrows deep into your tissue where antibiotic doses don't get. Basically, it has a lot of ways to change its shape and hide. And there are things that you can take under this theory and things that you can do, like exercise and going to saunas and so on, that will bring it out so that first antibiotics, and then as you get better, your immune system can actually kill it. So you would try and combine, you know, a couple different antibiotics with, you know, oil of oregano, serapeptase, and grapefruit seed extract. That would be a cocktail, right? To try and have the combined effect of bringing the bacteria out and killing them. And of course, to a whole swath of medical doctors, this is just, you know, seen as ridiculous and absurd. And I can only tell you that it absolutely worked and I could not have survived without doing this. Could not have improved without doing this. That will and must change somewhat your understanding and the credibility and authority of official medical channels in, in, in every way. I mean, I'm thinking also of the early years of HIV and AIDS when so little was known and so many people were trying all sorts of things, sometimes absolutely crazy stuff, but sometimes relatively smart stuff. But inevitably you learn, I think, when you have some sort of chronic disease, that you are ultimately it's your body and you've got to figure out what's going wrong with it and how to solve it. And you can use their expertise, but it's never fully enough, I don't think. Or in some cases, it's not obviously fully enough. But it's not well, enough. certainly not in, um, in the zone, you know, the zone that HIV was in, right, where, you know, the, the first 15 years of the disease or however long, all the medical establishment has to say to you is it's going to kill you, <laughs> right? Yes. And if that's the message, then why would you not? experiment right i mean right. this is no, that's yeah. and with lyme it's a little different because what the medical establishment says oh no we know what's happening here it's just that you don't qualify right because you know we've done what we can for you and you should be better and if you're not better you don't have lyme anymore which is a different it's a different kind of mm. message of certainty but at the same time the effect <laughs> is ultimately similar right i mean you mm -hmm. I mean, I think it varies, right? Like there are with you can't with, you can't say to yourself, "I'm going to risk this because the other alternative is death." You can risk this because the other alternative is an endless life of this yes. suffering, right? And and there's a huge range of chronic Lyme and chronic illness experiences, right? There are some people for whom chronic illness means occasional bouts of fatigue and you know, sort of occasional joint pain and things that are sort of livable, I think, and adapt, you can adapt to them. And for whatever reason, I was in the camp where, you know, my, my problems were so unbearable that the idea of adaptation was sort of unimaginable. And, you know, not anymore, but for the first, let's say, two and a half years. And when you're in that zone, then, you know, the sort of first do no harm theories of medicine that are, you know, good baseline theories, right? You don't want people just, you know, inge in ingesting bleach or, you know, dosing themselves with fish tank substances or whatever, you know, all the fears that sort of stalked people in the days of the Trump presidency that he was going to get everyone to take bleach or something. You, you don't want people doing that. But at the same time, you know, you have to try. You have to try things. And you cannot just be bound by basically by official medicine, because there's a huge zone in between pure crankery 
and you know what can be proved with seven double blind controlled trials right and right. in that exactly. zone there are a lot of things that will help people here you are you're not job exactly i mean as i read on left twitter you're actually a force of darkness in the world but so suddenly you are stricken with extreme suffering and there must be a spiritual and religious response to that as it transpires tell us a little bit about that how did it affect your faith so i would well i wouldn't say it definitely strengthened my faith not in sort of a not in any kind of simple way exactly or maybe in maybe in a very simple way right where you know if you go into a very difficult experience with some kind of religious faith i i feel like it's likely to either break it quickly or you end up depending on it and maybe there's a middle ground but that those seem like sort of two obvious options and possibilities you either decide mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, you feel abandoned by God, which means God doesn't exist, which means, you know, the world is just, you know, the problem of evil dispenses with God. And so here we are alone in Darwinian reality, or you end up depending on your belief more than ever, not, but not necessarily for, you know, there's not necessarily for any purely logical reason. There's, you know, no reason that the experience of pain and suffering proves anything one way or the other about the existence of God. But it makes the existence of God feel more necessary to endurance and survival. That that was the main thing, I suppose, that I found, right? That like Which of course some would say kind of in some ways indicts it. You're sure. just using it as some sort of crutch. Of, yes, this is the suggesting the, the body always existed because right. that that in the past religious faith was stronger because human bodies were so much more vulnerable to disease and to death and to mortality in ways that rendered the human soul needed to reach out to something somewhere to sustain them when their bodies were being racked. And, and now that we live in the comfortable, anesthetized, bacteria-ridden West of modernity, we don't need that more. And some would say that experience that you needed your faith more, maybe, in these moments to prove that right. Well, I think that is right, but it doesn't, but it, it cuts both ways, right? It doesn't, the, the fact that faith feels psychologically necessary under conditions of great duress doesn't prove that it's, that God is real, but it also doesn't prove that God isn't real. Either, it, yeah. Right. But the third option to the two ideas that God has gone and evil reigns and God's still there, but I, and I need him, is something I experienced, which was the, the sense that God was evil. That, in fact, it's that that is the meaning, that suffering is visited upon people who do not, people for whom there is no reason or rhyme for the misery that they endure, that there's something sadistic about a God that will inflict that. I mean, that's another possibility, right? Yes, absolutely. And that, I, I wouldn't say I... I went all the way to there, but you definitely, in leaning on the idea of God, in leaning on the idea that there must be some purpose to this, right? That this is a test and a trial. And if I can, you know, it is in some sense for my refinement and my good, if I can only figure out what I'm supposed to do and get through it, 
in leaning on that idea, you also develop at the very least a healthy fear of what else might God might do, do to you. That well, you know, once you've stipulated that, you know, that X years of chronic illness and excruciating pain are well within the kind of things that God might do to a nice, you know, a nice Catholic convert <laughs> like myself, then why shouldn't he extend it indefinitely? And in fact, you know, you can mm -hmm. read in all the annals of human existence, including very much the lives of Catholic saints that, you know, there's no guarantee that faith, you know, gets you off at a certain point. It's not like, oh, well, if you believe in God, you'll get through this and then you'll have your old life just restored to you. There's absolutely no no guarantee of that. So yeah, I, I, I feared God more and still do in a sense than I ever did, than I ever did, except intellectually before, you know, intellectually, you always know that this could happen to you, but it's different when it does. Well, exactly. And you live, at least I lived in periods of crisis like that. Inevitably, I felt closer to God in a weird way. I felt much more close to the experience of mortality in a way. Maybe my disease was, because it seemed 100% fatal at the time I got it, brought up the concept of your own death much more vividly, vividly than simply the the concept of your long life of suffering. But again, there is the Catholic idea that is actually good for you, that suffering has a good purpose, that we should dedicate it to, to God, that we should embrace it for what it can teach us about the essentials, that in fact, any minute, your physical body could be destroyed or hurt. And where are you with God? And where are you? Where is your soul in those moments? So it does force you to that place, right? Yes. Yes. And then you slide back from that place very easily. That's the, I mean, what you were saying before yes. about how easily you move between the kingdom, you know, when you're in the kingdom of health, you can't imagine the kingdom of illness in the same way. You can have these sort of acute moments where you feel, you know, closeness to God or where you feel the sense of your own mortality and your need to give an account of yourself, or you can have, you know, as I had eventually some particular experiences that feel like a little bit of the divine finger pushing in. And in the moment of those experiences, you think, well, you know, this is, I'm going to be a different person, you know, I'm going to be a better Christian, all these things. And, and it does, you know, as when you return to health or step away from those extreme moments, it's hard to sustain it. But I, I mean, but I would also, what's definitely true, except for those first months of phantom heart attacks, once that, once I was into the chronic phase, it was not the feeling of, of imminent mortality that was powerful. But what was powerful was the feeling of sort of your body as something that is not yourself in full and that you can be in a sense trapped inside. Like, I feel like I had a very strong sort of, you know, Cartesian dualist feeling at various points in the mm -hmm. illness where I feel like, you know, until your body goes wrong, you really do feel yourself as sort of an integration of body and soul or mind and body if you, you know, don't believe in the soul, right? And then once things go wrong, you feel like you can feel like there's sort of, there's yourself and it's still yourself and it's inside this suffering body and it can't get out of it. But it also isn't exactly identical. You're not just your body, right? I, I That was the feeling that I had very strongly throughout. And also, I mean, I was fortunate in that, you know, you were very kind in saying earlier that you felt like my columns, 
you know, my newspaper columns were still lucid, but my mind still worked. I, and you know, one of the insane things about the, about having the doctors tell you, well, your physical suffering is all in your mind is I would sit there and think, well, my mind is the only part of me that functions, right? Like I, my, I, can, <laughs> yes. I can write a newspaper column. I can carry on a pointless Twitter argument. Just, you know, just fine. Thank you. It's everything else. And that too, I think, contributed to that sort of dualist feeling that like I could sort of push myself into a Word document and write a column and live in that reality and be sort of separate from the body for an hour. And then you'd return to the the feeling of being imprisoned. And fairy tales have a lot more, I say this in the book, but fairy tales have a lot more resonance too. Like the idea of sort of imprisonment and transformation and all of these things that you know, are sort of resonant for children and then drift away a bit. Those come back to you a lot in this kind of experience. And there was a moment when, because uh, you're, you're very careful in describing these experiences, but you're saying a version of the Hail Mary. You're, this struck me, obviously, as a Catholic. I it felt this very powerfully. And it did really feel to you as if uh, Our Lady intervened at that point and really did pick you up to some extent. Yes. And I do try to be very careful. I mean, it's, I, I basically, for most of, for a long portion of my illness, these sort of, these Herxheimer reactions, these feelings of sort of purging something from your body. At first, you could only, I could only get them from taking drugs and combinations of drugs. And then at a certain point, it seemed like my own immune system was doing something. And then, yeah, there were this one particular moment and then some moments after that where basically asking for intercession from the Virgin Mary originally and then from some, you know, some saints here or there seemed to deliver this kind of physical experience. This like, not again, not a cure, but a sort of wave, a, a purging wave that would go through me. And it wasn't, again, it was very different from the mystical experiences I watched people having as a child because it was physicalized. I didn't, you know, I didn't have, I mean, you've written, Andrew, some about sort of what I think of as sort of like the kind of numinous kind of spiritual experience, like mm -hmm. the feeling of sort of oneness, mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, that people get in prayer or sometimes with, uh, I know with sort of experiments with psychedelics and these kind of things. And I've never had anything like that. And these responses to prayer weren't anything like that. They were completely physicalized. It was like my, you know, my arms and legs needed to flail and did. And yeah, those, you know, it's all, it just, yeah, it pushes you to the fringes of experience in a way that, that, you know, I think the biggest, I think the biggest change it induces is, you know, you hope to become a better person, but you definitely become a more open-minded person to the strangeness, the absolute strangeness of existence as we experience it. Yeah. And you give a sense of the porousness of the body and the soul, like as if it's part of nature, not separate from it, and succumbs to parts of nature and contributes back, but also is also in touch with the supernatural and with those who died. And it sort of breaks down that very clear barrier between your body and the rest of the universe. Yes. I mean, chronic, I mean, this is obviously true of any illness, but with a chronic illness, you sort of accept that something has gotten into your body and lives there, right? It's not, it's very happy there. 
it's delighted to be there, right? And can yes. live there for extended periods of time. And there's just sort of, and you know, you know, again, you know this intellectually, right? Oh, you know, we have healthy gut bacteria. We, you know, we have various things living in our skin. You, you know, you have the idea of that, but you don't experience it. And in an illness, in an illness, you do. And yeah, to sort of have, to then have, you know, a few sort of peculiar spiritual but physicalized experiences layered onto that. Yeah, it gives you a sense of both kinds of porousness, I would say, in a way that I didn't. Yeah, with with, with my watching my watching my friends die of AIDS, you saw what was already in them, cryptosporidium, little tiny little bacteria, suddenly because the immune system disappeared, the things that were in you took yeah. over. They ate all your food before you could. It was as if the natural things that were part of your body anyway, suddenly the immune system's ability to keep them in some kind of check slowly disintegrated. So they took over your body. So your body slowly became a, a, a function of various other factors, whether it be something called toxoplasmosis or cryptosporidium or cancer or bacteria that simply would normally be taken in stride and slowly you your body became less yours than theirs and that's a, that's a particularly difficult challenge to wrap one's head around as it's happening to you and if, certainly in my experience those who are able to find some spiritual calm in the middle of that were the ones who who endured it probably with less agony than some others. Yes, although I will say I should say I never I don't know if I ever achieved spiritual calm i think that my the strengthening of faith that i felt was sort of it was much more desperate you know i didn't sort of yeah. learn to pray in a calm sense and resign myself to god's purposes i was flailing and crying is how i think about my mm. relationship to god and you know i mean god willing if it was actually death you would yeah i would hope to achieve something different than what I had in this case. But in the end, it was a prayer of just, God, help yes. me. It, there's a point at which you just yell help to the divine. Yes. Well, that was, no, I, that, that's what I'm all, that was what I was always yelling. <laughs> yes, it's, it's a, there's just a point, there are certain points where it's, you know, yeah, the, it's sort of the desperation becomes uniquely pure and raw. But no, that was my constant prayerful refrain. I'm going to ask you two questions on two different topics, which are questions that when I said, I'm talking to Ross, what should I ask him? It came up a lot. The first is, haven't you got your opposition to Pope Francis out of perspective? He, the, 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 the current Pope, for all the criticisms you can make of the somewhat freewheeling style, the somewhat improvisational nature of it, the mixed messages that are sent out. I, I can understand all that. And I can see why that would concern you. And, I, and things like making the old Latin mass impermissible strikes me as something that I'm fully sympathetic with those who, who wish to see it continue. So I can see that. But is he splitting the church in two by simply urging some level of compassion to maybe divorced people or to gay people, enabling them to go to the Lord's table? Is that really something 
that threatens to divide the church in two? So, I mean, I, I think my view of the Pope has changed a little bit as his approach has changed somewhat over the last two or three years, I guess, since I wrote my book about the church, which was the book that I was writing when I was at my sickest and probably should be read with a slightly lie for that reason. But it's I, a book I think that had a few, a few very sharp turns in it that struck me as, oof, he, okay, I was with you until, and then suddenly it has this dark turn in it. But that's just my impression. It's a, it's a great, you've never, you can't, you haven't written a bad book, Ross. They're all really incredibly smart. Well, there, no, there are some things, um, there are some things in that book actually that I, in terms of just analysis of the moment in the church that I quite like and feel like I should, you know, repost on a Substack or something, just sort of some of the parallels, especially between sort of this era and past controversies in Catholicism that are really interesting, like the, you know, the Jesuits versus the Jansenists in 17th century France, I think has some yeah. really interesting echoes in our own era. But no, I mean, I think there was a period where it seemed to me that the, the Pope was simply intent on creating a certain, with a kind of deniability, sort of, you know, using decentralization to effectively Episcopalianize the church in the sense that it's not just, you know, that we're sort of, you know, making a small, generous opening to the divorced and remarried Catholic or the gay Catholic. It's that church teaching on a range of issues, including not just sexuality, but euthanasia, you know, a, bu a bunch of issues that I think have a lot of relevance <laughs> for the trajectory of the developed West right now was just going to sort of be put on a shelf. And the use of sort of exceptions to rules was going to just sort of eviscerate the rule, right? That sort of there was going to be an exception on clerical celibacy, for instance, that immediately would sort of establish a new norm and so on. And I think the Pope has sort of walked back from some of that. I think the decision not to forge ahead with a kind of Amazonian exception on priestly celibacy was a, a kind of crucial turning point, actually, in the papacy, where the sort of... When you say the, Amazonian, we should... I mean, in Brazil, Brazil in, in the... the Non-Catholic. Yes, sorry, in the, in the Amazon rainforest, where there is even an even more acute priest shortage than elsewhere in Catholicism. And I think he sort of, you know, and, and the same thing on divorce and remarriage, where we've, in the end, we've ended up with, you know, yet more layers of ambiguity, rather than what I think would have been the more radical change that was being considered. And I think, you know, to, I, I have, I said this in the book, and I've said it elsewhere, but I think there is you know, I, I think what it's really important for Catholicism to preserve some of the radicalism, the core radicalism of the New Testament. And that radicalism, it seems to me, is, you know, about wealth and poverty. And I think Francis has been, you know, some of the stuff that a lot of American conservatives don't like in his critique of capitalism and so on, I think is just fine from that perspective. But I think the New Testament has a pretty radical vision of human sexuality that, you know, priestly celibacy and, you know, sort of disapproving of divorce and so on actually are important to preserving that it's something that, you know, in its 
most radical form Christianity is asking of people, and I don't want it to go away. And I think it's sort of gone away in mainline Protestantism, and I don't want it to go away in Catholicism. And how you balance that with the need to recognize, you know, the incredible difficulty and challenges of human life and human difference is a really hard question. But I didn't like where Francis was going in the first few years. The last few years, I felt more like he sort of stopped pushing for reform from the top, but the divisions in the church, in part because of his push, but also because of other factors, have just gotten much, much wider. And the division between, you know, sort of online people who are much more anti-Francis than I am, right? The very online traditionalist Catholics and the very liberal German bishops who really do want a sort of, you know, Catholic version of liberal Lutheranism. Those divisions seem really wide, wider than they were five years ago. And I don't know, I, I'm, I write a lot of columns now that I feel like end in this totally agnostic place where I'm like, I don't see how exactly this holds together. And, you know, it's up to God to see the Catholic Church through. But that's been sort of the shift. I think I write less let's, 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 that's let's critical of the Pope and more that's sort of, you know, concerned about Catholicism just coming apart in various ways. If we are to reflect the radicalism of the Gospels, then obviously large amounts of personal wealth, let alone making your living in the stock market or other purely financial, would seem to be a barrier to communion, would they not? Um, I think if that... We're, if we're really going to make a no-exceptions policy, then the wealthy really do have to give up their money before they come to church. No, I don't I don't think that's exactly right. But I think that there I think that the it definitely is the case that there are certain professions that are constant occasions of sin and that might ex that might include portions of Wall Street. Yeah. I think there's I, I don't think you can you know Jesus doesn't tell everyone in the New Testament that they have to give up all their money. He tells this to the rich young man because of his particular situation. But the early Christians were nearly communistic, were they not? I mean I think the first I think the yeah the, the church of the first 30 to 50 years after Jesus seems fairly communistic. But the I'm just the saying sort of, the, but the bulk, the bulk of the early church is basically emphasizing the need for rich people to be extremely charitable. And I think that you know, that's a little bit different. The reason the sexual issues are so neurologic is because, you know, with something like divorce and remarriage, right, it's sort of an either or, whereas the question of like how charitable you were supposed to be is a is, is more, I think, of a continuum where, you know, you have sort well, of, for most, for most people, now this may not, but, you know, I mean, someone like Bill Gates, right? Can Bill Gates present himself for communion as a rich man? I mean, there are other reasons why Bill Gates might <laughs> present himself for communion, right? But the rich man <laughs> who's running the world's largest philanthropy, is he, you know, is he sort of in a state of mortal sin because he hasn't simply given away all his money? He's sort of managing its disbursement. I, I, I don't think he is. I think that, on the other I hand, there is a distinction between a, a let me, between a married couple that just decides we're bored of each other, let's get divorced, and then the, and one of them wants to stay in communion, and another one that's gone through a terribly difficult marriage with all sorts of conflicts within it and cruelty within it, who wants to get out of that marriage, and then because of that need, 
is then barred from going to communion seems to be a form of, of, of kind of a, a middle way that you won't accept. Well, no, I don't that think that requires the, the couple, the couple who, understanding of the, where that is. The couple who gets divorced for reasons like the ones you describe isn't barred from communion. It's remarriage that barred that. That well, if she him. wants to remarry, if that person wants to, does find someone who isn't abusive, who is loving, and who wants to form a marriage with her, and she does that and is then barred, I just find if you're going to be radical about this, then you have to be consistently radical, it seems to me. And there's a lack of pastoral compassion in the position that you seem to hold. I'm not going to press this point. Well, in, I think pra in practice, no, let, let, me, let me just press it back for a minute, right? I'd say two things. One, in practice... You know, in Western Catholicism, there's all kinds of pastoral accommodation, right? And the entire evolution of the annulment process in Catholicism has basically created an environment where people who have severe difficulties in their marriage can usually get an annulment, even if the theological grounds for it look a little shaky. So I guess my feeling is that there's been a lot of de facto accommodation on the ground. I don't think all of that accommodation is bad. But I think it's different when that accommodation is combined with the church saying at the center that basically it's just sort of up to you and your discernment whether you go back to communion. I think there's a basically I think there's a point at which the compromises to living necessary to being a church in a post-sexual revolution world, which I think are made and continue to be made and you can't you know, they're not going to stop being made reach a point where the original radicalism isn't just attenuated but sort of but sort of disappears and you know i mean this this also See, varies not, with, with the is... parish you're in and the experience you have of the church right but my experience of the of american catholicism is for the most part not of you know people thundering anathemas against remarried Catholics, it's of essentially, you know, practical accommodation to post-sexual revolution realities combined with sort of from a high point, this continued teaching that this is not the ideal situation. And to me, that seems like a better compromise than moving towards where mainline Protestantism has gone, which is, is to say that, in fact, there's no sin or problem here involved at all. But that strikes me the place, exact place where Francis has taken us. See, to me, that's the right. This is to, I do think that Francis has taken us from one ambiguous place to another, and he did not go as far towards the place I did not want him to go as he could have. He basically, you know, he released a document where the key passage was in a highly contested footnote. You can't get more ambiguous than that. So in, in, in that, I agree with you. I think we're still in this zone of post-sexual revolution ambiguity, and we aren't all the way towards the church. The church teaching on divorce doesn't exist, right? But I think you could, I think you're not that many steps away from it being something that literally only exists in like a dusty document in the Vatican. And when you get to that point, I do feel like you've betrayed something important to Christianity. And I mean, I should say that my, you know, my parents are divorced and i think i have a pretty keen understanding of the reasons that lead people who are serious christians to get divorced but i also think from that experience i have a keen understanding of why i don't want the teaching against divorce to go away simply let's move along to 
<laughs> we, we could do another hour, but we, 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 that, we, we, I, I will say that book about the Pope, that, that was a tough one to promote because I would go on like, you know, would have a nice interview with David Remnick at the New Yorker. And he'd be like, Ross, look, if you get divorced, God forbid, in 20 years, you're going to get remarried, right? Come on. Come on. So, you know. I'm not saying that. I appreciate talking about it with you, Andrew, because it was not, well, it was, yeah, it was, yeah. it was not. The, well, it, it's obviously the, a big question. And I, I, I understand where you are. And I'm, I am reassured that you aren't quite as rattled as you were three years ago, which is a good thing. But moving right along to another institution, which you have defended as <laughs> not in the worst crisis imaginable, at what point do we say you were wrong about Trump, that he did actually try something really quite outrageous towards the end of his, and that the Republican Party has not just not distanced itself from that outrage, but has endorsed it, is now defending it, and he's now busy in various state legislatures attempting to make sure the structure is there that if we have a similar situation, they can rig it or at least gum it up. And now you have it becoming routine, like in, in California right now, for Republicans to say it's rigged before it even starts. That's the Trump position. It's rigged always. If we lose, it's rigged, even if we win, actually, with Trump. Uh, he claimed it was rigged when he won it. Right. He didn't uh, win the popular vote. So that was this rigged. Is, Yes. Yeah. So, so th this is, there is no other political party in the West that is attempting this assault on basic democratic procedures. Surely the time to reassure us about this party's stability and responsibility is over. And yet you keep trying to do it. I, see, I don't know. I, I have never attempted to reassure anyone that the Republican Party is in good shape that it's a positive force in American life, or that people should vote for its nominee for president. This is not an argument. So in, no, none of those are arguments that I've made. The argument that I've made is that the Republican Party is in no position where it is likely to overthrow democracy and institute a right-wing dictatorship. That is the argument that I am, for better or worse, and when we live under a right-wing dictatorship, I will have to recant it. That is the argument that I that I am committed to. And I am... and. And that argument, I do not think, has been invalidated by Donald Trump's extremely bad and completely ineffectual attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. What does it say about a political party, nonetheless, the majority of whom adhere to these fantasies and lies of this guy about the last election and about future elections and indeed about all elections in the United States? This is a fundamental undoing of democratic legitimacy by a major political party. This is new. I'm sorry, what does it say about, what is the... Should, does it mean that this political party is a danger to the basic functioning of our democracy? That's the question. Not whether we're going to have a dictator overnight, but whether, in fact, the procedures of liberal democracy are slowly disappearing in a way that will leave a future president, as we now discover in many ways, capable of, of, of attempting things that no previous president would have attempted. In other words, is, there a, is the, the, the current Republican Party a threat to the republic? I mean, <laughs> yes, in a sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I'm talking to, but I'm, but I'm aware that I'm, I mean, your view, Andrew Wright, and I, I appreciate your forthrightness about this, right? Your view is that both right and left are threats to the republic. Right. Yes. Right. 
So I, sh- I think I, sh- I share your view on both counts. I just think the threat is less immediate than you do, right? So when you write about wokeness and Ibram Kendi and the sort of totalitarian or you know illiberal side of progressive ideology, I uh, maybe obviously <laughs> tend to agree with you. And you, when you write that Donald Trump is terrible and the Republican Party is you know is sort of deeply morally compromised by its support for his lies and fantasies i tend to agree with you i just think again it may be totally wrong i think the overall stakes are lower i think the power of wokeness to sort of impose its rule on american life is more limited than some of its critics think and i think the threat that the republican party's you know sort of lapse into into paranoia is less severe than some people think. And since I operate in environments where the second view is incredibly powerful, I end up arguing with it a lot. And so I develop a well-earned reputation as someone who's an apologist (laughs) for the Republican Party, which I don't think I am at all. But I am interested in understanding the dynamic between those two forces, right? The extent to which, you know, the summer of George Floyd and progressive protest helped contribute to the winter of Republican election fraud paranoia. I think those, I think these forces are sort of locked together in yes. a dangerous spiral. I just also think there are, are limits to it. And that like, if you look at, you know, if you look at what Trump actually did right that you know led to the events of january 6th there was no coherent plan there was no actual coup in the sense that like you know the general milley and others keep talking about there was a sort of flailing media strategy and a bunch of phone calls demanding that elect elected officials do something it wasn't even clear what they were supposed to do exactly and so my to me the moment where you know you're like okay now we're locked into constitutional crisis is the moment where you know you you see republicans explicitly in advance of an election setting up not like oh we're going to cry fraud when it's over but setting up mechanisms for saying no matter what happens the state legislature is determining who wins Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or whatever. Well, that, they that is more what I am looking that? for. What right now, what they're, they're doing, doing is electing a bunch of they're electing a bunch of they're electing a bunch of officials who are like, yeah, you know, Trump won the last election. They're not telling the voters of Pennsylvania we're, you know, we're pre-committing to having the legislature pick the electors. And I think you need that kind of pre-commitment for a legislature to actually consider doing it. I could be wrong, but that's my sense of things, that the the people in the state houses who, who did not go along at all with what Donald Trump wanted them to do will also not go along with what he wants them to do next time, should he run again, which I think he will, and not win the popular vote, unless there's like a pre-commitment to a specific a specific plan of action where we're going to, you know, the state legislature is going to do this. And I, I don't think you see that yet. I think you see a lot of, you know, sort of toxic, performative, you know, fraud mongering that isn't the same thing as the leaders of the Republican House in a state saying we're going to overturn the popular result. But may, well, you we'll know. see, won't we? 
I, I, we, I'm we will totally, we will totally will be see. Helpful. We will totally see. And I will, you know, when we're both on Baffin Island in exile, we can record <laughs> another podcast and I can say, Andrew, I was not against the Republican Party enough. My concern is that you're not against the woke people enough that you that on the New York Times op-ed page, uh, I understand why you might feel a little defensive about going nuts about the Republicans. But where are your denunciations of the abolition of biological sex? Where are your concerns about a critical race theory? I mean, they seem to be very absent from your columns. I mean, I look, I read them faithfully. and I, I don't know about that. You're saying that Brett, think, do you, you think Brett Stevens has out anti-woke to me by, by. I don't, I look, I. We, we just, please. Brett and I just draw straws yeah. for which. No, you don't. You have consistently avoided these questions, Ross. Oh, I don't think so at all. I think that I've written about them. I mean, first of all, I, I think if you go back and read I mean, I, I don't want to, you're, you're putting me in a position of like, you know, trying to brag about my own work, which is not really, but I think if you go back and read, I think I wrote like eight straight columns about different aspects of where wokeness was coming from and what it involves in the course of, in the course of last summer, starting with a column. And I mean, what they were, it's true. They were not Sullivanian denunciations. They were sort of more critical explications, I guess, which is generally my style and again it's going to doom me in the you know in the weimar style civil war right but yeah i mean i'm interested in why people are woke i'm interested in the appeal of these ideas mm -hmm. i'm more i'm less of a liberal than you are so i'm more sympathetic to critiques of liberalism from both the left and right i think they need to be i, I think at the very least liberalism needs to do more to integrate them so you know to the extent that like you know, John McWhorter will write a column saying wokeness is a religion and that's why it's bad. And I'll write a column saying wokeness is a religion and that's the best thing about it, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that's <laughs> that's more my style. But I also think I see myself, I, I wrote a series of columns about the education debates this summer and they were, I'm sure, too temperate for you. I basically would say, look, here's, you know, here's what progressives want to, sh to change in American education. And here are some things that they want to do that I think are reasonable. And here are the things that they want to do that are not. And most of the things that I said were not are things that I would associate with, you know, sort of candy or white fragility or, or those kind of texts and tracts. But, you know, I write, I feel like the New York Times readership is, has, you know, sort of deeply divided sympathies, right? They have sort of a, they're closer to wokeness than you are. Definitely the average New York Times op-ed reader, probably. But they also have reasons to be sort of skeptical and uncomfortable with the turn. And, you know, the same goes for some of my friends and neighbors here in New Haven. And so I'm a sort of an outsider to what seems like a civil war within liberalism, you know. And I, I feel like it's helpful for me to sort of play the outsider's role a little bit and say, OK, here's what I see as the contours of debate. I want the liberal side to win and not the woke side, but I think the woke side makes these understandable points. And I think that's more useful in certain ways from where I am than denouncing Kendi every week. But I, I could be wrong when I'm finally dragged off the page by a team of, <laughs> you know, of gender fluid, you know, I mean, no, you can, whatever scenario you would imagine, yes. I will once again have to repent and say the... that Andrew was right. 
the gen the gender fluid Slack channel is what where you have to be most that's, afraid. That's, that's um, what... I don't want you. No, but I, but let me. Let, I I, I'm not I afraid. To... I'm not afraid. I think though that I, it's there's no point in being a writer at the times op-ed page i think if you are simply in a cycle of denunciation and so i try to avoid that and maybe to a fault sometimes but that's that is my general strategy to be critical without and, and that's how i've approached the republican party and with the republican party i mean look you know the republican party is bad and terrible in seven different ways, but I don't want to live in an America just ruled by liberalism. So I'm, I am going to continue for that reason to look for, you know, look for signs of what the Republican party could look like and after Trump and not delude myself that it's likely to get better, but still try to be helpful to any trends that might improve it. And, you know, and it's also all my fault because Raihan, your former assistant and guest blogger, and I wrote this book, <laughs> Brand New Party, right, 15 years ago, where we said the Republican Party needs to become a working class and populist party. And we got what we deserved. We got it. So here we are. Yes, and you have almost no influence in it. That's the problem. But um, the profit is always without honor. Of Andrew, course. So. I don't I, I, I don't want you to stop being the nuanced, careful writer that you are. That's part of what makes you so good. But a little more edge would help assuage me, make me feel less political. But secondly, well, trust me, I, 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 wrote, I wrote a column about this, but, you know, I've been watching. Have you, have you watched Babylon Berlin? Yes. Oh, my yes. God. So, right. Amazing. So this is ter just a terrific show. But I literally watched that show thinking to myself, well, how much are we like Weimar and how much are we not? And how should it inform my column writing? Right. Like I do think about these mm -hmm. things. But then we moved on to the show about the, you know, the Nazi occupation of France, the uh, village Française, which I also really recommend. What, what so, is it again? Sorry. It's called it's just called What's A French thing? Village. And it's a show. It's like 10 years okay. old, but it's basically about a small French town under Nazi occupation. It's like six or seven. Seasons. Is it is it Netflix or? It's on Amazon, yeah, and it's in, like Babylon Berlin, it's just subtitled and, you know, some slight soap opera elements, but actually, like Babylon Berlin, really good. Ross, it's been lovely to have you, and it's good to reconnect. I feel terrible about what you've gone through, the pain you've suffered, the suffering you've gone through, and I'm more than thrilled that you are feeling a little better. And thank you. Well, well enough to write a book about it. Which is all that well, no, I'm talking to you right now, and yes. just watching you the last hour and a half. You know, I mean, it's not like you're racked with pain right now, unless you have a, a genius ability to suppress it. So the fact that you're functioning this well <laughs> after what you described in your book is a mitzvah, right? It's a good thing. So thank you so much for coming. I also want to make one small. I hope I don't denounce every week. I've tried to. I've had no, well, tried to explain you, the reasons for my denunciations. I, I think. I think that you're. First of all, I think many of your denunciations are splendid. And second of all, in defending myself, I did not mean to, I did not mean to accuse you. I just, no, no, no. you know, we all of us have different roles to play in the great drama we do. of our time. And I, you know, since there's, I, I tell friends on Substack, right, that, you know, you have passed beyond cancellation into a different world. And that's, you know, that's its own, that's its own place, I think. It's also a wonderful place. But <laughs> there are reasons to stay where you are. And I, for one, am grateful for you. And um, send you all my love. And, uh, and thank you for coming on the Dishcast. I really appreciate 
you're the Dish alum coming back and talking to us all these years later. Ed, thank you so much for having me, Andrew. It was lovely talking to you, and I send you all of my love as well. <laughs> God bless, and we'll see you guys next week. We have another really great guest coming up, but we're going to keep it secret until, until a few days before. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on the Dishcast. Thank you.